Folks, we're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the tax-friendly way to preserve your charitable giving. In times of crisis, those with a giving spirit and a desire to build up civil society find ways to be helpful. And that's when it's good to have a charitable resource ready to deploy when they're needed most. Donors Trust offers donor-advised funds or giving accounts. You can use these funds as your own charitable investment account and manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax-advantaged, aligned with your values, and private. Donors Trust clients are using their funds to support charities helping their local communities while also using their giving account to simultaneously support think tanks and liberty-minded organizations that believe our constitutional rights shouldn't get lost in a time of emergency. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join their community of liberty-minded donors by opening a donor-advised fund. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash JustNews for the ultimate survival guide to charitable giving and learn how a donor advised fund can preserve your ability to give to the charities you love. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Just News. Hello, everyone. I'm Greg Jarrett, and welcome to a conversation about my new book. It's called The Trial of the Century. And my guest is John Solomon, my friend and colleague, one of the best investigative reporters in America and author of books that are bestsellers himself. Uh, Before we jump into a conversation, let me give you a little background about this case. Um, It's a trial that happened almost 100 years ago and the most important trial in American history because at stake were freedom of speech and civil liberties that were being suffocated by a popularly enacted law back in 1925 was a period of time in America in which the Christian fundamentalist movement swept the nation. And they were able to convince states to pass laws uh, that banned books on science, in particular on evolution and in Tennessee, They passed a law to criminalize the teaching of Darwin's cornerstone uh, evolutionary theory in public schools, even though the state-approved textbook had a subchapter on evolution. So go figure. A young 25-year-old school teacher by the name of John Scopes was promptly arrested and criminally charged. Uh, And leading the prosecution uh, team was... William Jennings Bryan, a three-time presidential Democratic uh, nominee. Uh, But he was the fundamentalist leader. So gratified was he over the law that was passed, he decided he was going to prosecute Scopes and convict him. His longtime nemesis, the greatest defense attorney who ever lived, Clarence Darrow in Chicago, opened the newspaper one morning and read what was happening. He became so incensed that he volunteered to defend Scopes for free. And this set up what the New York Times described as the most amazing court confrontation in Anglo-Saxon history. And it truly was. Journalists the world over converged on the tiny town of Dayton, Tennessee, Uh, Microphones were set up inside the courtroom. This was the first trial that was broadcast live on radio to a riveted nationwide audience. Newsreel cameras were set up 
in the back of the courtroom. You can see it in some of the photographs contained within the books. A waiting plane with its engine running uh, stood on the outskirts of, of town to fly the film to Chicago, where it was distributed nationwide uh, into movie theaters. And people would flock to the theaters to actually see and hear what was happening in what was known as the Scopes Monkey Trial, a public misconception popularized uh, by the media that man descended from monkeys. So joining me now to talk about what's in the book, what occurred in the trial, which, by the way, is based on the original trial transcript that I obtained in the dusty archives of the courthouse that still stands in Dayton, Tennessee, is my friend and colleague, as I mentioned, uh, John Solomon. John, thanks so much for taking the time to talk about the book. Appreciate it. Well, it is an honor. Uh, you took something that was a century old and made it relevant to all of us. And it's riveting. It has detail that I can't even imagine what the historical research was like for you. But if ever there was a trial that 100 years old meant something today, it's this trial because we're living in that moment now where our civil liberties and our free speech are again under assault. This time by the central government in Washington and by big tech. And in this, this book speaks to me in the climate that we currently live, but you bring together this great history. And of course, Clarence Darrow, one of the greatest country lawyers, one of the most eloquent lawyers and a true civil libertarian uh, in all of American history. Yeah, uh, you've done this country a great service. It's amazing. Thank you. You know, what struck me and the reason I wrote this book is it is as relevant now as it was back in 1925. Yeah. They were trying to suffocate uh, learning and to extinguish freedom of expression and freedom of thought. America was at the precipice staring into this abyss of censorship and suppression of speech and, as I say, thought. And, you know, were it not for the great Clarence Darrow, who has always been my idol since I first read about him as a teenager, one wonders where America would be today. And, you know, isn't it so odd, John, that, you know, the old saying is true. Those who don't know their history are doomed yeah. to repeat it. And we're repeating it today. We are. We are in, in uh, your choice of this. I mean, after two extraordinary books where you took contemporaneous history and reminded this country of the follies and mistakes we're currently making, weaponizing law enforcement, creating a witch hunt, uh, creating the great Russia hoax. This one takes us back to an earlier time. And for me, I feel like we're in a um, Alice in Wonderland looking glass moment. We're looking through 1925, but we're seeing ourselves today. And the words of Clarence Darrow today couldn't be any more relevant. And quite frankly, William Jennings Bryant's defense of the other side kind of sounds a lot like the things we hear from big tech and the Homeland Security Department. How much an inspiration was the last four or five years of seeing you, me, and so many other people being um, censored to going and do this. I mean, picking this out of history from a hundred years ago, I was like, why did you do that? I know now, but what was the process of why you went about doing this? Well, I've thought about this book for more than 50 years since wow. I was a, a, a teenager and I plucked uh, a, a biography off my father's shelf. Uh, it was uh, the great Irving Stone. Uh, who had written so many great books, and he devoted himself to a biography of Clarence Darrow. And so interesting in the back of the book towards the end, there's a chapter on the Scopes Monkey Trial, 
Uh, and this was the end of free speech unless Darrow prevailed. That's and, right. And recently, as we saw the FBI uh, trying to censor and suppress uh, the Hunter Biden laptop, uh, when we saw ex-Intel officials proclaim it uh, disinformation from Russia, I thought back at at what was happening in 1925 and again seeing America repeat its past mistakes. And I thought now is a good time to tell this incredible story. And it wasn't just a story of, of civil liberties and America back in 1925 that took a wrong turn. But it was a story about two of the most famous, iconic figures in American history, yeah. uh, the great William Jennings Bryan, who delivered probably one of the top 10 most important uh, speeches in America, his famous Cross of Gold speech at the yes. Democratic Convention back in 1896 that elevated him to, you know, iconic stature in America. Uh, but also Clarence Darrow, who, you know, he became known as the attorney for the damned, uh, the despised, the <laughs> oppressed, uh, yeah. the disenfranchised. The deplorables of 20th century ago. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they became his treasured clients. And without him, they scarcely stood a chance against the immense power of the federal government and its unlimited resources. And, you know, we see that too being repeated again today. And who will stand up and fight the good fight? Back in the day, it was Clarence Darrow. Yeah. Who will do it today? You, there are so many characters in here. And I think when you read the book, you see Williams Jennings Bryant today being the embodiment of big government, right? Big government wanted to set the speech. Uh, you see, I, to me, a, a to kill the mockingbird sort of country lawyer with such incredible eloquence. I mean, we forget how eloquent Clarence Darrow was, but you've done that with the transcript so powerfully. And then we see the reverse of, I think, what was going on at that point. There was a biblical view that wanted to be imposed over the free speech rights. Today, those who have a biblical view, they're being censored in some ways. The the Anti-Evolution League today could just as well be uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center or some of the other groups that today are trying to stamp out entire points of view in the, in the name of calling it disinformation or un-American, or I guess the fun one you and I have used, Russian disinformation. It seems like a couple of the terms and characters have played changed but the debate is almost identical to a century ago. Uh, were you struck how similar the sentiments of big government and the right to control speech were then and how close they are to the, to the people that are at the Homeland Security Department today? Oh, absolutely. It's, it really is striking, the similarities, the resemblance. Uh, you know, back in the day, you know, um, People of religion and faith, and I am certainly one of them, sure. um, decided that they were going to impose their own values on everybody else. And that meant that science had to take a backseat to the Bible, uh, that all learning uh, had to be measured against what is in the Bible. Um, and, you know, William Jennings Bryan believed that everything in the Bible should be taken literally, including yeah. the story in Genesis 
of the divine creation of man and evolution, of course, in in his mind and so many others was a direct threat to that. Of course, you know, what's so interesting is, is Clarence Darrow knew more about the Bible than William Jennings Bryan did because Darrow had grown up with a father who had attended seminary school and a mother who was deeply religious. Uh, Darrow had committed passages uh, from the Bible to memory. Um, Brian, who pretended to know more than anybody else, didn't. Uh, and, And that set up this tremendous confrontation. I mean, Darrow knew that he was losing the trial. The judge was biased, an ordained minister who began the session every day with a fire and brimstone prayer condemning the accused John Scopes, a biased jury, only one of whom knew anything at all about evolution. And uh, so Darrell had a stroke of genius toward the end of the trial. The judge had foreclosed his putting on scientists and theologian to explain that creationism and evolution were harmonious concepts. The judge would have none of it. So Darrell calls Brian, the prosecutor, to the (laughs) witness stand as an expert on the Bible, counting on Brian's ego, uh, not permitting him to resist. Sure enough, Brian stood up when the judge said, wait a minute, you can't do it. And Brian says, yes, I can. And I volunteer to take the stand to tell the truth about the Bible. Um, There is a great photograph where the cross-examination actually took place outdoors in front of the courthouse on an elevated platform left over from the 4th of July activities. Thousands of people looking on from the bleachers. And Darrell cross-examines Brian and utterly destroys him. You know, Brian thought everything in the Bible should be taken literally. The Bible is filled with allegories and parables uh, and, you know, patiently and determinedly. uh, Darrow picked apart certain passages in the Bible that Brian mistakenly thought were literal Uh, You know, Joshua making the sun stand still, uh, Jonah and the whale, um, you know, the great flood. And Darrow was able to demonstrate um, that all of that is, again, allegory. You know, the Bible tells important lessons of moral behavior, how to live our lives. Um, And Brian never understood that. The crowd began to understand. They were all admirers of Brian, and he's sitting in the witness chair, fanning himself in the searing heat. And the crowd turns against Brian and begins to side with Daryl. The crowd begins laughing at some of the answers that make no sense coming from the lips of the great fundamentalist leader, William Jennings Bryan. And they begin mocking him. And at the very end, the judge halts it, bangs the gavel, ends the session for the day, and the crowd converges on Clarence Darrell, the man they despised, and they're they're congratulating him. And there is a solitary, lonely figure 
as Daryl looks over his shoulder, Brian by himself, truly defeated and utterly destroyed, so much so <laughs> that he laid down for a nap a couple of days later and never woke up. Wow. You know, what's so uh, amazing and people don't understand is Scopes was convicted. It took the jury seven minutes to convict him. And Daryl may have lost the trial, but he won the larger battle in the court of public opinion. Because people everywhere read about the trial. Uh, They listened to it on radio. They watched it in movie theaters. And there was an enormous sea change. And this spelled the beginning of the end for banning books in classrooms and criminalizing the teaching of evolution, a monumental moment in American history. It's uh, really remarkable. Uh, and, you know, there's that great scene that you just played out where uh, Daryl gets basically lures Brian into the witness chair and then, of course, destroys him with the arguments. And it's a reminder that some of our greatest legal cases often on the first verdict, the issue lost, but in the larger time frame, particularly as cases walk through the appeals court and the public gets educated, uh, a loss can be a major legal and political win. And, and I, I find that so fascinating here. I think ultimately the Arkansas Supreme Court, or, uh, the Tennessee Supreme Court, excuse me, uh, decided to reverse this on a technicality. So the fine to scopes was, you know, ultimately erased, but it never got bid on the constitutional issues, but it didn't matter, right? Because by the time the trial was over, the public sentiments had really shifted. There are seems to be in front of us now some pretty big cases working their way through the courts where the outcome of the case may not even be as important as the debate America is having. Are we in one of those moments like the 1920s right now? You know, I think we are. Uh, there are a great many court cases uh, that are constitutionally challenged. And, you know, if you listen to the media, you know, they they don't understand whatever a district court judge rules. They think that's the law forever. Not true. It goes to the court of appeals and ultimately nine people in black robes sitting in the United States Supreme Court were engraved on the pediment equal justice under law. And that ideal is being challenged time and time again. Uh, You know, we are seeing right now dual systems of justice, politically driven decisions by the Department of Justice, the FBI, uh, the treatment and mistreatment of people uh, based on their political ideological persuasions. And that's fundamentally wrong. Uh, And in the end, it is up to the high court to make a reasoned decision consistent with constitutional principles. And, you know, 1925, um, the Establishment Clause uh, was not binding on the states. You know, the Bill of Rights, um, these were federal rights. Uh, The 14th Amendment was intended to incorporate those rights uh, upon the states, but it didn't happen. Uh, and instead, the Supreme Court took one right after another in the Bill of Rights and ruled on them individually. So in 1925, you know, the Establishment Clause wasn't a right uh, within the states and states could pass laws such as they did here 
which were a clear infringement on the establishment clause uh, that the government shall uh, not establish a religion. Well, they were clearly endorsing religion over free speech. It wasn't until 1947 the Supreme Court eventually uh, said, you got to abide by the Establishment Clause in the U.S. Constitution. And it wasn't until uh, the late 1960s that finally the Supreme Court squarely addressed the issue uh, that was front and center in the Scopes Monkey Trial. And, uh, you know, said this is a violation of constitutional rights. Clarence Darrow is such an extraordinary figure. And I know you know so much about him because you've um, covered him and, uh, and really understood him over time. This was one of the last cases he did. I think he had a couple after this one, but there weren't many more. But over his career, he really evolved. And, and you know, he started, I think, in corporate law, as I remember. Then he becomes a labor lawyer. But over time, he became, a, a, may have, he may have even joined the Anti-Imperialist League, if I remember correctly, but he became a, a, a highly concerned about the size and power and scope of an imperial government. And I, I wonder today, uh, would he be representative of the ACLU, which oftentimes is defending the government these days against things that make us all worried? Or might he be more of a Republican conservative today? He had a grave distrust of big government, didn't he? He did. Um, you know, he thought uh, government was too powerful, as I said before, with unlimited resources. Um, they can take away uh, anything and everything from any citizen if, if left to their own devices, and often they are. And it takes people like Clarence Darrow to stand up uh, to them. He was always suspicious of popular opinion, um, and he took on cases uh, that challenged uh, popular opinion, yeah. including in the in the Scopes trial. But as for today, at the end of the book in the epilogue, I, I try to speculate how Clarence Darrow would handle uh, such divisive issues, uh, such as critical race theory. Yeah. Um, and I think he would try to find common ground. The problem with CRT is that there's no universal agreement on what it is. There That's are right. disparate versions of it yeah. uh, being taught in schools. If it means... Uh, that we must honestly and accurately teach students uh, about uh, America's uh, disgraceful history of slavery and segregation and discrimination and Jim Crow laws. Um, Darrow would argue in favor of that honesty. Let's not sanitize history. But if it uh, means, on the other hand, uh, that students are being taught that based on the color of your skin, you fall into one of two groups, the oppressed and the oppressor. Um, Darrow would argue that classrooms are not venues of guilt and shame. That's right. And he would fight against it. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I try to bring history full circle to today and make it just as relevant. And of course, he had uh, some famous essays on eugenics at the time and yes. the, the corrupt use of science to perhaps, you know, to determine the fate of humanity in some ways. He it's uh, such a fascinating character. I, um, I, I, I and the other thing that when you read this book, and I think it's so important, 
he had a personality, a wit, and a humor that could disarm anyone in a moment and also slice someone at the same time. The, the level of skill he had as an orator, as an, uh, an argumenter in the court of law and in the court of public opinion, yeah, I think was probably unparalleled. There were many people like him in the law profession at the time. Today, lawyers don't seem – there aren't many lawyers that seem to have the sort of skill set. Darrow just had a such a unique – capability to talk to a jury or to an appellate and in, in, in uh, court at the same uh, uh, capability and persuasion. Yeah. Uh, is the art of persuasion a little bit less compelling today? It seems like today we have a lot of blunt force hammers and not a lot of great, sophisticated, witted arguments that win. There are no Clarence Darrow's today. Uh, as I, part of his genius was that um, he understood the motivations uh, that move men. He was a keen observer of human nature. So you would see two Darrows in front of a judge by the sheer force of his, his intellect. He could prevail in any legal argument, uh, citing by heart the Constitution and statutory law, but a different Darrow in front of the jury. Uh, he would study the communities in which the trial was being held, and he was spellbinding uh, in front of those jurors, uh, you know, telling folklore uh, and sp speaking their language, never talking down to them, never talking over their heads. Uh, you know, it was said of Darrow that, uh, you know, he was a fancy Chicago lawyer with it nice was. clothes, but he would ball up his expensively tailored suit and shove it under the mattress the night before trial began <laughs> to, <laughs> to get legit. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. But you Isn't know, that funny? Thing, the other thing about Darrow is that um, he was human. Yeah. And he made mistakes. He was possessed of the same foibles and frailties that afflict us all. And I yeah. tell the story. I represent open, it. Uh, I open one of the chapters telling the story of, uh, the worst moment in Darrow's life, he shows up at the door of a friend with a gun in one pocket and a bottle of whiskey in the other. He's he's drunk and depressed and he is suicidal. And he tells his friend, I'm going to kill myself. Um, and throughout the course of the night, she talked him off the e edge and wow. said, Darrow, and she always called him Darrow, not Clarence. He hated Clarence. Darrow, um, you have to fight uh, to resurrect your good name. He had been charged with bribing a jury in a famous case in Los Angeles, the bombing of the LA Times building uh, by labor leaders that he was defending. And, you know, historians have debated, did, did Darrow really do that? Did he bribe a jury? Right. I fall into the category that he did. Oh. Horrible, horrible misjudgment yeah. by Daryl. But, you know, that was the part of Daryl uh, that appealed to me, that yeah. he can make a mistake just like me. Perfectly imperfect. Yeah. yeah. Perfectly imperfect. There also, you get this in the sense of the book, and I, I think um, he had a passion in a um, – 
a uh, an empathy for the people he was representing. I mean, he really felt for this teacher that he couldn't believe this teacher was going to be punished. I mean, clearly he was winning a much bigger battle than just this teacher. But it seems as though he all that Midwestern wholesomeness that maybe came from he grew up in Ohio, if I remember, and died in Chicago and maybe spent some time in Michigan. He had that Midwestern sense, but it seems like he was a guy – that, that could relate to the uh, the people he was representing, even though they often would have come from vastly different experiences. Uh, how, that's a side that you know gets captured in some of the movies. I think that have been made about him, the plays made about him. He's had a long. I mean, he's long been gone, and yet uh, he is still a favorite of Hollywood and songs and music. Uh, why so popularized? Do you think? Well, because of his humanity, yeah. his compassion, his decency. Um, forgiveness was a constant theme, yeah. uh, for Clarence Darrow. Uh, he was virulently against the death penalty. Yeah. Um, he, he reasoned in the famous Leopold and Loeb case, he managed to save their lives. That That's was right. known as the crime of the century. That's right. Yeah. Um, teenage thrill killers, right? Spree killers, right? If yeah. I remember yeah. yeah. Thrill yeah. killers, Leopold yeah. and Loeb. Right. Um, maybe there's another book there. But um, let me read a quote from Please. Clarence Darrow from from my book. Um, I have friends throughout the length and breadth of the land. And these are the poor and the weak and the helpless whose cause I have given voice. Now, that says it all about Clarence Darrow. He went broke defending uh, people for free, people yeah. who couldn't afford a lawyer. And and back in those days, you know, if you couldn't afford a lawyer, one was not appointed for you. That's right. Um, and so Clarence Darrow would defend people who were utterly despised, the pitiless. Uh, and that was part of his uh, great compassion for humanity. Um, and, you know, Clarence Darrow, at one point in time, he had to sell his prized first edition book collection in wow. order to pay his rent. Uh, and it, it's just an incredible story of a very noble man with a big heart. Uh, and, you know, among lawyers today, there are very few. Yeah. Yeah, there are very few like him in, in the history of this country with the level of skill that he had. Um, last question, because I think we've entered an era, the Trump era, where lawyers have been castigated simply by the choice to defend President Trump or people around him. Yeah. They're censored, they're debarred, or at least facing debarment for making arguments that in an earlier time in American history, no such lawyer would be um, punished. Clarence Darrow, one of the greatest that the law profession ever produced. How would he look about the behavior of some of the law profession today, particularly the governing bodies that seem to now apply a political litmus test to their uh, bar decisions? He'd be ashamed of it. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise him because he saw the same thing in his day. Yeah. The strong arm of the ever powerful government. Uh, who are victimizing the citizens they are supposed to be serving with honesty uh, and truth. And, you know, it was John Adams who, who I think popularized the words uh, that it is the duty of a prosecutor not to gain a conviction, but to see that justice is done. 
Of course, Adams was a great lawyer himself. Sure. Uh, and, you know, prosecutors today, they forget that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it not only do they want to gain convictions unless they uh, uh, are protecting somebody, Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, um, but they've lost uh, their way. They have forgotten that uh, it's the pinnacle of justice to see that it's fair and equitable. Um, and they, you know, they've lost sight of that. I blame law schools for not teaching it properly. Yeah. Um, and I blame the lawyers themselves for not reading about conscientious, thoughtful lawyers like Clarence Darrow. They could learn something uh, by reading about Darrow, whether it's my book, The Trial of the Century, or whether it's the 1941 edition of Irving Stone's uh, great book, Darrow for the Defense, right. which is the book I picked up when I was barely a teenager and you know, read it cover to cover, and then I read it all over again. And I've revisited that book many times since, always learning something new. Uh, books are a wonderful gift, and too many people rely exclusively on social media. Yeah. Uh, as a consequence, they don't know their history. There is no tweet, no Facebook post that could possibly do what Trial of the Century does. It is a, it is a it, first a riveting story because a book has to be a great story. And Greg, you write with such command, and you know, as someone who tries to practice or as a writer, it's I'm in awe of your ability to put words together that bring stories to life. But and bringing Clarence Darrow to life and bringing this incredible free speech debate to life. What you've done for us has reminded us that at this moment, we need a Clarence Darrow to defend free speech in America now. You have done such a public service with this book. And obviously, I, I'm, you know what I think about witch hunt and and uh, uh, the Russia hoax because I, I love the reporting and I went through some of that with you and I know what that story is. But you took me back 100 years and in that 100-year-old story, I find so many points of relevancy for the moment we live in in 2023. And that is an amazing gift as an author, as a historian, as a lawyer, and as a, an investigative journalist and researcher like you are. Uh, it is an amazing book. And anyone who's listening, folks, if you haven't gotten this book, give it as a gift 10 times over. It is one of the most important books you'll read because that free speech that was at issue uh, with uh, the trial in Tennessee 100 years ago, it's on trial right now in this country with big government putting it uh, in grave danger. Uh, great job, Greg. I, I just love this. I'm so excited by it. I appreciate your kind words. And, uh, you know, I have nothing but great uh, admiration and esteem for your work oh, as a you. wonderful investigative reporter uh, for Just the News, which is my favorite website. Every day I turn oh, to thank you. Just the News because it's uh, the news you need to know. And it's invariably the truth. So, John Solomon, thanks for joining me uh, for a conversation about my new book, The Trial of the Century. It's available online. It's also available in bookstores nationwide. You can go to my website, thegregjarrett.com. Again, many thanks to John Solomon, my colleague and friend. And thank you, uh, the audience, for being with us today. Hey, folks, have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully, you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. 
But if you're like me, you probably don't have the time to do that, right? So maybe you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. I take it every day. Sometimes I put it in a shake. Sometimes I put it in my egg white omelet in the morning. Field of Greens can help prevent, treat, and cure cancer? No, but it can powerfully help you out at your next checkup. Your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Here's the most amazing thing about it. I started using Field of Greens a year ago. My cholesterol is down, my blood sugar is down, my weight's down, my health is up, my sleeping patterns are better, my metabolism is up. If you wanna experience what I've experienced, go check out Field of Greens. Jump into the ring here. You're going to get an enormous benefit. And it's so simple. Single scoop, a couple of seconds, healthy lifestyle all day long. Now, thanks to our good friends at Brickhouse Nutrition, Field of Greens is going to give you a 15% off discount plus free rush shipping. All you got to do is go to fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS for your discount. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com, promo code JUSTNEWS. Go check it out. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't, you'll pay up. Plus interest and penalties. You need Tax Network USA, and you need them now. Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. Like a preferred direct line to the IRS, they know which agents to deal with and who to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify. So schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited time IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash justnews. That's tnusa.com slash justnews.